Welcome, welcome, welcome to this episode of the Gaming Podcast, uh, the official podcast of Gaming Magazine. You can check out more from Gaming Magazine by visiting GamingMag.com. That's G-A-Y-M-I-N-G Mag.com. Remember, new episodes of the Gaming Podcast come out every two weeks. If you're new to the podcast, please click subscribe so you don't miss another episode. Later in this episode, I'm going to be joined by Charlie Martin, a trans racing driver who's taken the leap into esports during the coronavirus lockdown. But first, I'm joined by games presenter and broadcaster Shay Thompson. Hello. How are you? I am good. I'm missing the good weather. The sun has definitely left the chat and I'm very sad about it. (laughs) (laughs) It has been a crazy summer of weather here in the UK, but it sort of goes with the rest of the year being ridiculously crazy around the world. So what can we do? It's true. Um, We're going to sit and talk and gab and waffle for sort of 35 minutes or so about some interesting gaming topics. Um, I was playing Mafia 3 the other day. Um, I, I was lovingly gifted a code by 2K. Thank you, 2K. Um, and I, 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 I went into it having played Mafia One and Two, and obviously they're set in sort of like the very early nineteen, uh, very early nineteen hundreds. Um, and this Mafia Three sort of like zooms forward a little bit into nineteen sixties. And what was interesting is that you play as a black character. Um, however, when you load the game up it came up on this big screen uh which was kind of like a disclaimer that said that 2k and hangar uh basically have included all these references all of these things for historical accuracy and there might be some fruity language uh which is unsettling and whatever else and i sort of thought okay that's that's an interesting way of sort of starting off a game within five minutes and i look i'm 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 recognizing my privilege as playing as a, a as a white guy but within five minutes, they're dropping N-bombs, like, left, right, and center. And it got me thinking... A, it made me really fucking uncomfortable. But B, it got me thinking about historical games. And should we... I guess the question that opens this conversation is, should we, for the sake of historical accuracy, and maybe as a learning opportunity, make white people feel awkward? Or is there a sort of counterpoint to that of, like, do we really need to be reminded about those sort of social problems in the 1960s and let's be brutally honest uh still going today um so that's my sort of opening thing like discuss (laughs) (laughs) so actually i i really appreciate the way you frame that first question because i feel like that is the motivation of a lot of these kind of companies when they choose to include these themes in their games like it is sort of centered around whiteness it's like you know okay well white people need to know about these issues and what's the way that's going to make them pay attention the most it has to be really shocking and really you know brutal and i think that's a problem in and of itself in order for like well in this case like black death and like racism to be taken seriously it has to have this wow factor when like in real life like racism it comes in like way more kind of sly and kind of insidious forms. It isn't just like N-bombs flying all over the place, mm. although that is, you know, a massive problem. And I think that that is a massive issue for me. Um, it's an issue I had with like Life is Strange as well, in that it didn't feel like this game was doing it with the best intentions. It was like, yes, we need to shock people. We need to spread awareness in this fashion. And yeah, after a while, it, it starts to feel like torture porn. I think a good example of, you know, wanting to highlight issues in the past without, you know, being very heavy handed, as it were, is Hollywood on Netflix, Ryan Murphy's mm. show. 
And I remember a lot of people kind of saying like, oh, well, you know, because it, 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 it's quite a fluffy show. You know, uh, the protagonists are like a black woman, a gay black man. You know, there's queer people all over the place. And I was like, I held my breath every time there were like, you know, the kind of deep monologue scenes because I was like, where is this going? But actually everything ended up working out really well. And obviously, historically, that's not what's happened. But it's nice to have a break from that. We've had decades and decades of loads of miserable, like really hard to watch scenes about racism, about gay people. And I just think it's enough. I, I really think it's enough. We, we know that times were hard for us in the past and now. Like it is nicer to have kind of fluffier stuff and have a happy ending. I don't think that, yeah, I don't think that, that should be the aim all the time. I, I, I think it's completely right. I, mm. I genuinely... Um... I found it kind of insulting mm. to my, that's going to sound awful, but to my intelligence, like I think, and I imagine this is a lot of other people as well. Like, I think your point of racism isn't inherently someone just going around calling everyone an M-bomb, mm. but it's more to do with um, the, the sort of little drip, 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 yeah. drip, the, the microaggression, microaggressions. Yeah. So there are moments in the game the, the, the short sort of half hour opening bit that I played until I really got a bit, I, I had something else to do, but I, I really wasn't putting it off, if you know what I mean. Like, mm. I was like, oh, good, I've got something else to do. Yeah. Um, there were some moments in there where you were definitely treated as a second class citizen. So it was mm. very much a case of you were being instructed to go and do the fetch and carry while the white characters would go and sit down on something. And it's like, that's interesting. That's yeah. That's a microaggression. That's something interesting that sort of, made me feel oh okay it's because it's because i'm playing as a black character in the 1960s but it kind of this is this is a stretch so go with me it kind of reminded me a little bit of torchwood now this is torchwood obviously for people that don't know is the doctor who spin-off that was written by uh russell t davis the same guy who brought doctor who back somewhere about the early 2000s and the idea of torchwood it was meant to it was very much pitched as the adult version of doctor who and so the first episode, um, everyone was like dropping F-bombs left, right and center. And there was a sex alien. Um, and it was just like, come on, this is like primary school crayon based writing yeah. where you had you had one job to sort of mark out the difference between your show and the family show that it accompanies. And so you just thought, I mean, we're going to have a sex alien. and I'm going to write swear words every two seconds in the dialogue. And it was just like, it was so blunt. And and my, my biggest sort of worry, obviously, with all this sort of historical stuff is if you just go in too heavy handed, like I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say it didn't exist. And I'm certainly not going to sit here and say these things don't happen. But I certainly wasn't alive in the 1960s. I'm going to put that out there as well before anyone wonders. But the, I would question the validity of somebody being that openly sort of racist that you're literally talking to black people in the 1960s and just dropping casual n-bombs into conversation as if you're greeting them of, of a lovely morning mm. now look i'm i'm this is this is me sort of theorizing and i'm certainly that don't claim a lived experience on this but i i think it could have been cleverer i think that's the sort of the, the summing up of that Absolutely. And, I, and like you said, I, I think the kind of microaggressions are way more impactful rather than just, yeah, throwing the N-bombs around. Like we've seen 12 Years a Slave, we've seen, like, we, we know that that really, really bad stuff has happened. I think yeah. a more clever approach is kind of getting into those nuances and, you know, like just, just getting a bit more deeper and a bit smarter with it personally, I think is, yeah, more impactful. 
Absolutely. And, and it, it, this isn't obviously just focused on race. I think this is fo- mm. this can be focused on historical games being uh, e- either with or without their content for the sake of historical accuracy. Um, by the way, every time I say historical accuracy, I'm using air quotes, but I, I realize no one can actually see this on a podcast, <laughs> but just, just, just know they're there. Um, purely, and, and this is another example of a game that I, I absolutely adore is Red Dead 2. Um, actually really good, by the mm. way, for, for sort of um, race representation and the lead character being very staunchly protective of, of his friends who are sort of multi-ethnic. Um, however there's the one thing that the game came in a little bit a hint of criticism for was that in in a land in a game that is so sprawling and the number of characters that you meet there was nobody that was overtly queer but we're going to sit here with the sort of maybe the boot on the other foot slightly and think well this was the late 1800s there was obviously rules and laws and and criminal uh acts against being out and proud so should we expect a game that is being historically accurate to include LGBT characters? I think you would, again, I think you would do it in a way that is much more subtle. It would be, you know, like sideway glances and like, you know, lingering looks. And I I think it would be, yeah, a lot more subtle because that's how it would have had to been. They would have had to hide their sexuality and hide their gender um, in order to, you know, not get killed. Um, So I think it just takes a bit of like, a bit of care and a bit of, finesse with it as opposed to having like these massive characters that are absolutely flaming like you know it'd have to be a little bit more subtle but I think that probably speaks to like I don't know maybe this is me being very cynical I feel like sometimes with games like they're like right okay so we can only talk about race we can only talk about gender we can only talk about sexuality or maybe like you know, a toss up of the two of them. But I feel like in order to do all three, like very, very well, it takes a lot of care that I just don't think these companies are capable of at the moment. Well, that kind of brings us on to the next topic we'll come to in just two seconds. But I, I, I sort of think that you're right, that, that this is going to sound really patronizing, but the, the, the brain power to sort of make sure they're doing a really historically accurate game and having great representation for females, because there's actually quite a lot of female empowerment in Red Dead mm. 2 as well, um, and having really good representation um, on an ethnic basis, that probably sort of, that was their main focus. And it's like, well, we don't have to worry about the gays because they went they went there. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, and, and I think you're right about the nuances, the, the, the micro... Uh, references there is a character in in red dead that you would describe as a bit au fait a bit camp Mm. um and that's just as it is um and there was no represent there's no discussion of his sexuality there's no discussion of his relationships or who he's married to etc so you you can infer what you want into that but it's interesting that in in how historical games or how how historical accuracy in games um has either led to some really poor treatment of um of abuse in some ways um or really subtle treatment that probably is a bit too subtle and it, it yeah. i just found it fascinating going back sort of full circle when i loaded up sort of mafia it's like i i hadn't encountered that in a game for a very long time and i certainly hadn't encountered it with a massive disclaimer at the start and that was the inter- that was the most interesting bit it's like they knew it was coming and they'd obviously made that conscious decision mm. yeah because life is strange too i think had a similar thing maybe i'm misremembering 
bring but i feel like it did and i remember thinking oh god here we go and like the first <laughs> episode of life is strange does start with like um the diaz family being called like slurs and whatnot and you know there's like a showdown with the police and so and and i thought actually the first episode was incredible because i was like right this is this is what i mean but then it just as the game sort of went on it did just start to feel like torture porn like these kids could just have nothing good happen to them and i was like oh no and i think that's pretty much where i land on it i'm like you know what we've had enough things depicting you know those eras it's enough let's look towards like let's tell other stories you know that's very much how i sort of approach it and you know maybe that's unfair of me to say because maybe we haven't explored enough in the past but right now i am tired of it <laughs> yeah and i and i don't think we can sit here and say that's that's us wanting erasure mm. i just think there are there are other stories that can be told and i think yeah. you can tell those stories because the, the the torture porn to want to a better phrase as, as you sort of rightly used um like we know that existed we know that happens and let's be honest we know it still happens mm. so maybe can we just leave that and tell some nicer stories in a nice way with nice sort of fluffy clouds and animal crossing basically i suppose basically yeah <laughs> and yeah i i think because i i've i see a lot of conversations happen around this and they're like oh well not everything is super fluffy and i definitely don't advocate for that and you know it's no, something we're no. going to come to um because yeah. i i remember when people were like when whisperings were coming out about the last of us part two they mm. were like oh they're just gonna they're gonna do the whole bury your gaze trope and kill off things girlfriend and i well i haven't seen i haven't finished playing it but um yeah and i was like i kind of don't know what's wrong with that because i'm like a lesbian revenge flick yeah give me that i want to do that (laughs) i haven't played that in a game before so i think yeah it, it definitely depends but i'm i'm definitely not asking everything to be super nice and fluffy but just yeah enough with the historically accurate torture porn i i'm definitely over that as a genre and as a storytelling device and what's interesting is that a lot some more recent uh remakes uh i can think of the yakuza remakes that have come out and also of course final fantasy 7 remake uh, some of the remakes have actually come out to try to fix some of the problems but they're mm. they're less about historical accuracy problems and more mm. about um uh, problems in time when the game mm. was originally made um i guess that's a type of historical accuracy uh, though because yeah. i guess the argument could be made well that was just it's, how it was done in those yeah, times well that's true yeah yeah because my thought obviously went to final fantasy 7 remake with the character mm. of beautiful boy which was a cringeworthy uh cross-dressing trans Ruff. roughly Ruff. badly done character that was the butt of every joke uh and just treated like shit basically um but to, to pivot that and actually deliver a character that is a strong and powerful non-binary character, mm. proud out, out non-binary character, I, I think that was that was an example of a good choice. Um, and similarly, I know with Yakuza, they've been changing some of their language. What's interesting with Yakuza, of course, is that they only changed that on the Western versions. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah i was just about to like kind of defend because i know like japan gets a really hard time when it comes to talking about um queer representation so i was just about to say oh you know like maybe this is a massive turning point so not yakuza but Mm. i do think at least final fantasy i I think final fantasy is a really good example and i know you're gonna hate me when i say this i do think (laughs) 
fire over. Yes, I knew that was Because, <laughs> yeah, you know, I was talking about this. Um, we were on a panel together last week and I was talking about like messy, like imperfect portrayals of queer representation. It doesn't mm. always have to be a bad thing. And I, I do think Fire Emblem is a perfect representation of that, you know. I'll, I'll give you Fire Emblem the new patch of Fire Emblem when they brought oh. out. Because they... Cause don't quote me i don't pay attention to fire emblem but about six months ago i think they issued a new update which did increase the number of uh queer relationships specifically the male male queer relationships um they definitely added in a new character that that could be uh, romanced on both sides so they i feel like they might have learned something so small little brownie point yeah oh i uh, will take that (laughs) for sure to them um we mentioned The Last of Us 2, so that sort of mm-hmm. seeks me in quite nicely to our next little thing that I want to talk about. The Last of Us 2 has obviously set, uh, made history. Um, mm. It's been, the, the it's, it's smashed into the sort of category of the best-selling PlayStation 4 exclusive. What do they ship? About 4 million copies in the space of about a week. Um, and that is a game that is uh, headlined by a completely proud, out and proud uh, lesbian character. It also includes uh, very, I think, accurate representations of a uh, bisexual character and a trans character. And there's always been this this debate, and it sort of feeds off of what we were just talking about, actually, around are AAAs brave enough to include LGBT characters? They've certainly been good over the past few years uh, with their NPCs, not so much their lead characters. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And now with The Last of Us 2... Um, we seem to have sort of taken a step forward. And I, I guess it's a case of like, this has proven that they can do this. And I'm just really interested to sort of know your thoughts on, on where you see this leading future game development. Yeah, I think they've absolutely done a good job of, like with it because, I mean, even in even up to the run-up of the release, I don't remember them kind of saying like, oh, you know, this is the first game with an out and proud lesbian character. Mm. They just presented it as fact. And I think that is, for me, like the biggest deal about this because it's taking a step forward, but it's taking a step forward in the right direction towards like normalising this kind of thing. And I think that's what's really exciting about it because it's it's Naughty Dog, it's PS4, like it's the biggest... But there couldn't be a bigger platform for this. And seeing that, seeing what that's going to uh, do for like so many young younger people playing this game, but then knowing that, I, and maybe it's, again, cynical to say, but I feel like a lot of other companies and studios and whatnot are going to say, like, you know, they did it, they made a lot of money, it's time we kind of clue into this fact. And, you know, capitalist motivations <laughs> aside, I do think that is a really, really it's a huge deal and not only that not even just like the baseline representation of having a lesbian as a main character i think just the fact that like it's it's sort of like a messy story and i say messy in that you know there's so much going on i haven't finished it yet it's not like this kind of fluffy story is this these are people who have multitudes they have flaws and that's fine. As I said, the game just kind of presents this stuff as fact. And that that is 
it's very very reassuring you know I don't have to sort of hold my breath because I'm like oh no this is what's going to be around this corner no it has just been you know presented as fact it is just a very real portrayal it doesn't it hasn't checked off a whole bunch of boxes to me anyway that's not what it feels like whereas some yeah some representation does feel like that sometimes I do think that this is such a good portrayal yeah absolutely and and you you made so many really good points there um the, the the couple of ones that sort of stood out to me is like I this obviously for listeners obviously Shay, Shay and I were on a panel last week and we were talking about something quite similar to this and I really loved when you talked about having messy experiences mm. because I know that when this game's first trailer came out we ran uh, Amy uh, did a good story on gaming about the risks uh, that were posed by that trailer um because it, it did have some suggestions uh that it would be it would follow the sort of bury your gaze trope and there was an interesting debate that sort of kicked off on social media if you can imagine such a thing um <laughs> that basically sort of a lot of people were like oh my god it's a bury your gaze and a lot of other people were like it's a horror game people die and that's just how it happens and I, it, was, it was such an interesting debate because it, it, you're right that gays in games are so often portrayed um as either exceptionally happy people that nothing befalls them and and that's because the developers are so worried about that yeah. um or they're developed or, or they're, they're done poorly when uh, they're a villain that's sort of uh, mustache twirling and, and maniacal and then they end up dying uh, or they're screwed up or fucked up in some way and they just can't yeah. be fixed and it, it, messy is an interesting phrase because it, it, it is that sort of like that's real life that's authentic yeah. Like we we all have problems. We all we all have our sort of dark sides. We all have our problems and th- and things we have to get over. And I think you're right. Portraying it in such an authentic way is a challenge to other developers that maybe are running towards the, the sort of queer cash cow, um, and they'll probably end up getting it wrong. So it's going to be really interesting to see how it pans out. Absolutely, and you know we we have like a couple of queer characters and LGBT characters coming up in games that are going to be released pretty soon I think and it'll just be very interesting to see how they frame it um because yeah I, I guess because I mentioned like tick boxing before and it mm. you sort of nailed what I meant on the head like I don't just mean oh including characters for the sake of it I mean like these these happy portrayals that like these characters they don't want to explore anything deep with them so they just make them very one-dimensional and they contain no multitudes no flaws and that's it i'm like that is not an accurate portrayal at all like i think people forget that people who exist on margins so people of color queer people disabled people we are still people and we are flawed we're not perfect we do contain multitudes and yeah it's just nice to see that sort of reflected back at us I think that's always the problem when you define someone as that's the gay character or that's the lesbian character Mm. is by defining them as that you've automatically put that heading right at the top of their character description so they don't have to worry about filling in some of the lower down boxes whereas Mm. it was obvious that they with um with Ellie with Abby and with um, other characters that have existed outside of that game in, in other franchises they've started at the top with woman survivor whatever 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 and then somewhere sort of down the bottom they've put lesbian question mark maybe um and so by defining it in that way you're letting people write them in a much more authentic kind of way but you can Mm. always tell the games where they're sort of like going well this is the gay character or this is the queer character because this is this that's all they've written for it um 
the outer worlds did a really good job i think with um pavati and and their asexual character representation because she was written with so many layers to her because she was quite abrupt she was quite um she was an engineer she was very factual um but it was in, in a blink and you miss it kind of way yeah she made reference to uh not really having any sexual attractions and you sort of it was almost a kind of blink and you miss it but if you got it it, my god that it rang so many bells that but it, it took like 20 minutes of, of gameplay with her to get through to that point mm. and it, that's that's where the sort of the interesting thing is going to come that's where the quality representation is absolutely and it, it it's such a shame that it's it's a rare thing like that we have to kind of like nitpick these these one characters every now and then and that, and that just kind of shows you that it's not really done right and I don't know where I end up on it because like I said you know I am here for like messier more flawed portrayals but yeah I, I don't know I just want it to be done right and right looks like so many different things but the messy the, the, the messiness comes in their other defining factors yes Th- them being a lesbian is not messy them yes. being a kleptomaniac them being uh, somebody who's um been disappointed so much in their life they have trust problems or something that's where the messy comes in being lesbian just is, that's, is, not th- that's not that's not even a thing do you know what i mean it is a thing but you know what i mean it's, it's nothing that can be screwed around with you, you are a lesbian or you're bi mm. or you're gay or trans or whatever the I, 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 it's, a, it's a phrase that I've actually fallen in love with since you started using it, which is messy. Because um, mm. messy doesn't mean fucked up. Messy yeah. just means layers, basically. Yeah. And yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. You mentioned uh, there are other games coming up um, with LGBT characters. Um, any of them that you're worried about or any of them you're looking forward to? So Cyberpunk 2077 that's that's the title right that makes me so nervous because i like it's just like every time the developers say something i'm just like just just don't stop (laughs) like because at first i was like oh you know like sort of gender blind quote unquote um character creation screen cool you know the only other time i've seen that and seen it done well was in saints row you could play with that all the way and the characters would just call you boss and it was it was fine. You could romance whoever you wanted to. Great. And then they're like, oh, well, people will only respond to you. Like, people respond to your gender based on what your voice sounds like. And I was like, oh. And then, like, literally the other day, I think the developers came out and said, oh, you know, like, we want to be diverse, but, like, not too diverse. Basically, it was like, don't tell us what to do, basically. Yeah. We're going to do whatever there's, we want. Don't tell there's, us what there's to do. Some... It's interesting. If you spoke to me this time last year or, or listened to, um, uh, we, weren't, we weren't podcasting this, this time last year, but I was on a panel this time last year. And I still maintain that cyberpunk is going to be history making because it, it's never been done before. But that's no excuse for doing it wrong. And you're right. It, you keep having to sort of sit there and go, this is history making, this is history making, this is history making. But the problem is every now and again, they keep coming out with uh, absolute clangers and it's suddenly, oh, for fuck's sake, they've just said something. It's just like, you feel like, okay, we, 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 we're making progress. It's all going well. Mm. And then they come out with a bit about, oh, yeah, that, so that people will sort of call you by the pronouns that you... And I was like, oh, cool, pronoun usage. Yeah, but it's based on the, what your voice sounds like. And I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. 
it's just two like, steps forward, can five thousand yeah, steps back. Like, can we please just focus on? It can't be that difficult. You've obviously written a mechanism in that can change pronouns in people's in in the 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 in the voice acting. So mm-hmm. surely there's a simple uh, selector of pronouns in the character building menu should just help define what you're called. That shouldn't. Yeah. That shouldn't be, or or go completely neutral on pronouns and try and stay clear of them. Just do they, them, there um, as a start, as a whole sort of starting point. Because there's nothing wrong with that. You and I would use that in conversation all the time. Oh, that's theirs. And oh, here they come. It's it's not, I I really, sorry, sidebar, I have a massive problem with people not being able to get their heads around using pronouns, particularly they, them, there. Purely because we all fucking use them. Them, when I, I don't just... know someone, I, I will always say they, like, and I've yeah. been doing that for years, like, prior to all of this. So it is unbelievably frustrating that as soon as you're told, you're like, oh, no, I just can't make my mouth move that way. What? Yeah. If, oh. we, if, if we're talking about somebody and I'm not 100% sure as to how they define themselves, I've just done it. I've just yeah. said they and themselves because I don't know how to define that. And that's not a new thing. People have been going back for generations doing that because it's a great way of describing somebody that you're not a hundred percent sure as to how they define themselves Absolutely. in sidebar um but no so cyberpunk 2077's one obviously uh we've talked about this before but um yeah. tell me why by don't yeah. nod uh very excited for that one mm. um a good wholesome story uh of a with a trans protagonist and it's going to be the first triple a game with a trans protagonist although that did make me raise an eyebrow because that's exactly i think when they introduced the game at e3 that's exactly how they touted it they were like this is the first triple a game with a transgender character and i was like hmm why do you feel the need to mention that surely you just let that be a surprise that not a surprise but i don't know maybe that's cynical no, you're right. You, you, and and it is. this is going back to what we just talked about, about mm. characters having more to their layers than just the trans character. Mm. But I think in their defense for this one, um, I think it was a statement, to be honest with you. I, I yeah. think it's a statement that, that almost is like they're setting the stall out from day one, like this is what we're doing. And, I, and it's also the game. The, 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 the game is about exploring uh, this person's lived experience um, of their transition. Um, so it's... That is what it is. Do you know what I mean? It's it's not like that's just the game. Um, You've changed my mind like in an incident. I hate excellent. you for it. Because cool. I do think it's an incredibly big deal to have Huge. that depicted in a video yep. game. So yep. absolutely do yep. shout about it. Yeah. And and I think as well, it of of course it got a lot of people's backs up very quickly. And of course, I I think it was announced after the Cyberpunk uh, mm. poster debacle. And so, yeah. of course, people are like, oh, my God, what's happening now? Um, and we reached out to them. We, we actually had a great interview. You can go and read it on uh, gaming. Um, think, yeah. Another one by Amy. Thank you, Amy. Which was uh, with the, the developers um, to sort of go through it and say, right, we've got a lot of questions. Um, and, and they walked us through the fact that they consulted with Glad. They consulted with trans people of their staff, which, A, brilliant move um but also the 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 lead character the lead actor who voices the lead character i should say uh, is trans too and and he had a strong input into the character's development um mm. using his own experiences so i think that certainly put to bed a lot of fears and concerns and i remember, I remember when that came out on our social media there was a lot of people that were like, 
a lot of our trans uh, fans were very much like, this is amazing. I feel so relaxed about this now. So yeah. I think that's great. Um, and that certainly is a game that I'm looking forward to. Um, I can't think of anything too much more on the horizon, obviously, that's going to come out. Obviously, there's there's rumors of others, uh, other games happening. Oh, um, Monsters High. Monster High. Oh, the, 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 that the that? super cute gay dragon, gay dinosaur. Oh, yeah. One that was announced on the PS5 exclusives. Yes, yeah, yeah. That, I that just that. looked like, adorable. Um, yeah. Again, interesting example. That was a game that came that was announced as part of the, the PS5 reveal, um, and it wasn't touted as the gay game, but it was there. Um, but very quickly, uh, we found out afterwards through some tweets that like yes this is a gay game or this has gay characters i should say mm -hmm. um so again didn't rely on that to start off with just portrayed a really super cute um animation style of of, of cute dinosaurs yeah, at, I know. at high and school I was like, and who doesn't want cute dinosaurs at high school exactly and i was like i mean considering the very overt furry context there i was like yeah this is this game's gonna be gay as hell and yeah I'm exactly so exactly <laughs> and, and then we had that confirmed on social media and then everything was great with the world yeah so yeah that should be really good actually so i think that's been really interesting and i think obviously these are massive topics that we've just scraped the sort of the surface of um mm. but i'm i'm genuinely excited uh to see what more's coming up i think the lessons learned by the community by the developers um from the last of us two success should be really empowering uh and done right we should see some great examples of queer games coming up absolutely couldn't agree more uh and i'll tell you what else is coming up uh after the break let's see what, see what i did there um <laughs> i'm talking to out and proud trans racing di racing driver charlie martin sorry i'm so excited by the fact i did that link i've completely lost the ability to talk <laughs> i'm talking to out and proud trans racing driver charlie martin there we go but for now, uh, thank you, Shay, for joining me. Uh, it's no, a pleasure. It's a great. pleasure as always. As always. And thank you for having me. No, no, we'll see you soon, and we'll see you, listeners, after the break. Did you know that Gaming Magazine now has a Discord channel? Come and enjoy more chat, gossip, and gameplay with your fellow gamers from around the world. Visit gamingmag.com/discord to get started. Welcome back. I'm joined now by my special guest this week, a true LGBTQ pioneer in motorsport. It's Charlie Martin. Hey, Robin. Good morning. Hi. Thanks for having Good morning. me on the show. No, no, pleasure. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, very well. Excellent. Excellent. Um, I'm really, really curious to sort of have this conversation because uh, you are a motorsport, motor racing uh, person. And obviously during this whole uh, COVID-19 coronavirus uh, thing that we're going through um the the sport has shut down like every other sport pretty much in the world um but you've actually uh pivoted and, and gone into esports uh as a way of sort of keeping your hand in and and learning some new skills and and, and developing some ideas and that sort of thing i just find that absolutely fascinating how people are changing uh what they're doing and how they're doing it using esports as a sort of tool almost, as well as obviously being hugely entertaining at the same time. Um, so I'm really, really interested. Uh, let's start right back at the beginning. When did you start out in motor racing? So I 
began driving, I guess, when I was about 24. So okay. quite late on in some respects. I grew up with a really good friend at school whose father raced at club level. So I guess from the age of eight years old or something like that, we used to go along and, and see him racing and be camping and you know, right in the paddock with all the cars and everything. Yeah. Really, really loved it. And so that was something that was present throughout my childhood. And uh, it really then my friend started racing when he was 19. And I started to think, yeah, maybe this is something that I can do as well. I had no family history of motorsport, nothing like that at all. So I really came at it from a point of starting at the bottom with nobody showing me really what to do. And I just was determined to, to get racing somehow. And that's a great story in itself because normally, and I say normally as if these things happen every day, but I used to have a friend when I was young uh, who's had a history of family. Uh, their family basically had a history of motor racing. So he was being brought up through the karting circuit and everything. Even while I was at primary school, he was sort of blatting around kart circuits. And I think it's, it's interesting that a lot of people come up through that kind of history, through that stage from young all the way up to old. So when you say that you got in at about sort of 24 that's an interesting sort of pivot. I, I, I'm not using the word later in life, but certainly in a, at, a, at a time maybe that's slightly beyond what a lot of people start to take up motor racing. It's very true. And, and you know, for a long time, I had this, well, I told myself this narrative that I can't ever be a racing driver because I've started too late. I, I've not been karting from the age mm. of 10 years old. And... For, for all of those other reasons associated with that, that I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm starting at this too old. And when I look back now, in hindsight, it's very easy to think, gosh, you know, why did I ever think like that? Because, uh, you know, I'm just powering along now and, and things are going pretty well. But Absolutely. it's, uh, yeah, it's, I, I think it's, if, if, you, if you look at motorsport, from the point of view of someone who, who doesn't have that family connection, that family history, a dad saying, okay, you know, <laughs> let's get a car and do this. And it, it's, it's very, it can be very hard to see your path into that sport. Um, and, and a lot yeah. of people think that motorsport is, <clears throat> it, it's seen as, as you say, this whole sort of experience of living and breathing and, and traveling and, and loads of sort of support and everything else. But relatively speaking um reading the biography on your website it, it's actually pretty cheap in a way to get into buy, in, a, buy a car do it up start racing yeah yeah i mean that, that's the thing a lot of people look at it and and you do you see formula one and you know, british touring car and all these things but for me i started off doing hill climb with a peugeot mm. 205 that i bought <laughs> for 1500 pounds it was a it was a half finished project, so I had to spend a year and a, a bit more money putting it back together. But I used to compete on a shoestring for the first few years, the first four or five years that I was racing. I mean, I was doing it on. I'm trying to guess, but I mean, you know, a few thousand pounds a year, which is still a few thousand pounds. But mm. but you know, it, it's 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 
a lot less money than people spend. I mean, yeah, you look at what kids can spend carting. It's oh, absolutely, yeah. No, I, I always keep thinking about to my friend who's, but I, I always thought it was the dad that was the carting person, and he just dragged the kid along for the ride, more or less. <laughs> <clears throat> um, in the same way that um, dancers would have pushy parents as well, he very much was the sort of pushy parent of of karting um and was always he was the one that was out there late at night tinkering in the garage the kid was in bed sleeping because he really just turned up drove it was the dad's hobby <laughs> i think he just used the kid <laughs> as the sort of mechanism to get into it but there we go yeah um hill climbing describe because obviously motor racing to most people is driving around in circles or driving around a track uh but hill climb is a slightly more unique idea isn't it it is i mean the funny thing is that it's actually the oldest form of motorsport okay back in the day it was yeah because cars were very very basic so they get a hill and you had to drive up the hill as quickly as you as you possibly could and that really transformed into hill climbing that we know it as today in the uk that's a time trial as you say you you start at the bottom of the course Mm. and you drive to the to the end of the course it's on tarmac it's like generally quite uh you know quite a narrow course so you have to be very fast you have to be very accurate if you make a mistake uh it's not like you come around again on the next lap so you get generally like two or three practice runs and then a few competition runs and so it caters for people in all different classes of cars from you can drive there in your road car and compete and drive home in it or you can be in a something that looks like a, a Formula One car, you know, single seaters and all kinds of things. So it's a very friendly, accessible way to get into the sport. Again, in, in hill climb, you can be doing it on a shoestring. There are people who are spending more, way, way, way more money than I could ever imagine spending. <laughs> and then in Europe, which is where I went over to compete, uh, in Europe, it's a closed public road, generally between two villages. So okay. it's, it's like a shorter rally stage. You know, in the UK, mm. you're talking 1,400, 1,600 yards. It's over mm. in 20 to 40 seconds. In Europe, you're talking more like, you know, two to three, maybe four minutes. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's an incredible feeling cool. to blast down a, a French B road in a single seat. I mean... Yeah, we we shouldn't admit to that <clears throat> on uh, on microphone, but certainly I, I can I can uh, I can relate to that. Obviously, blasting down some back roads and B roads near me. <laughs> well, I mean that's the great thing about hill climb is you're doing something that you you perhaps think this would be really fun, but you're doing it as an organised motorsport event in a, in a safe. Yeah, right. it's the sa- the safety thing's important. <clears throat> we, we we should yeah. have probably just put that one out there really quickly. <laughs> of course, um, yeah, no, not 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 for a moment. I no, no, no. To, to, to do anything no. other than that, it's so. a, it's a closed course. It's all very well controlled. Of course. Um, so we're talking about obviously the thrills of everything. So, the th- what describe to me what is so thrilling um, as a driver for for partaking in motorsport. I think it's a combination of things i mean first of all if you just think about the driving it's it, it it's the the rush you get it's the adrenaline it's it, it's doing something where in that moment when you're driving that car there is no other thought in your head everything is completely transfixed on the the, the road ahead of you and controlling that car on and beyond the level of grip it, it, it's 
I've, I'm lucky to have done quite a few things, you know, quite a few other sort of adrenaline sports. I've, I've mm. skydived out of a plane at 15,000 feet. And, but nothing, nothing really comes quite close to the feeling I get racing a car. And so there's, there's that. And then there's the, the, also just the, the camaraderie, you know, the feeling of belonging to something that is like one huge extended family when you're with everyone for a race weekend, the moments that you share together. Mm. And again, you know, with the other drivers, when you're all going through this thing where you, you're putting yourself through a very extreme set of circumstances and emotional feelings and you all share something very unique which is like a, a bond that that unites everyone it's 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 just an incredible feeling to be a part of that so that sounds really cool yeah, it's really um awesome. you're talking about motorsport and family you began your transition in 2012 um were there any concerns about not being accepted by the, the motorsport world and that extended family i had huge concerns if i'm honest yeah mm. i mean uh I had never seen anybody in motorsport who openly identified as LGBT. That mm. there were people throughout history, people like Hurley Haywood, for example, and Roberta Cowell, who was transgender back in the you know the forties. Someone who actually hill climbed at wow. Shelsley Walsh, where I've competed. But you know, back then, I you know I I wasn't aware of these stories, and certainly these people weren't competing at that point in time mm. in 2012 so mm. I had no way of, of of seeing if I would be accepted no no way of looking at someone else and saying well this person has been successful you know has been supported and I I I guess I just worried that you know everything I've just described that feeling of belonging to this huge extended family and uh, and all the all the joy that comes from that, I thought that would all be taken away because suddenly mm. I wouldn't have that experience every time I go to a race paddock, and I couldn't bear that. And so, you know, I thought the sport that I love would end up becoming something that that I hate, and I I walked away. You know, I just said that's 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 it. I can't see this is ever going to work for me. So for you, you felt that obviously your self-truth was more important than the sport. Completely. I had, I had to, I reached a point, probably one of the darkest points, I think, mm. in my life at the end of 2011, where I just couldn't carry on living as the old me. Mm. I realized that I was going to live, potentially live the rest of my life. I never know who I really was. I didn't recognize the person staring back at me in the mirror anymore. And the, the pain of having to deal with that day after day became too much. And, I, you know, I was actually suicidal at one point. But then when I reached the, the, the understanding that the only way forwards, there is only one way forwards, and that's to to be me, to be the person that I know I am inside, that I've always known. Absolutely. And actually that was an incredibly positive moment because yeah. although it was very scary, I thought, well, I've made this decision now and and this is what I want more than anything else. You know, this is what I have to do. So it was a very 
yeah, a, a, a huge moment in my life. And it, so you took that leap and it was one hell of a leap. Um, on your return to the paddock post-transition, how did that feel? It felt very scary. Mm. I, they, over, the, over the course of the summer, friends and my family, my two older brothers, <clears throat> all, all said, yeah, you know, come on, don't you? Don't you want it? Because I was going to sell my car and everything. And, mm. and I said, you know, don't you just want to go back and just see? Just, just, just find out. Because otherwise, you never know. It might be okay. You know, you need to get these. We can't imagine you not racing because it's something that's so much a part of your identity. And I, yeah, I said, yeah, you know, they're right. I'm scared, but I need to go back and just get some kinds of answers. And so I told two people, two of my best friends at racing, one never spoke to me again. Um, and I, I remember just saying, look, I'm going to come back. Can you just tell everyone what's happening in my life? Hmm. And I'm going to come back without the car. I'm just going to come see everyone at a meeting. And it was, yeah, it was, was really, really, really scary. I remember I had to really push myself to get out of the car. I was, I was sat in the car in the car park thinking, am I really going to do this? You know, I could just drive home now and that would feel a lot easier. <laughs> and I walked into that paddock and probably out of you know, 300 people that I knew, six or seven of my really close friends in the class that I raced with who came over and gave me a big hug and... and uh, you know, just were really happy to see me and left me in no doubt of that as well. Yeah. Uh, and that that really helped me get through that day. If they hadn't have done that, I, I would never have gone back to the sport the next yeah. spring. And I thought, yeah, you know, this is hard today. This has not been easy. Mm. But if this is as hard as it's ever going to get, then this is a starting point to move forwards and it can only get easier over time. And I still felt those feelings of, I'm happy to be back in the paddock. That's really cool. And like I said earlier, the, be, becoming that kind of like, the, almost the face of uh, queer motor racing, what more do you think the motorsport world could be doing to support its LGBT drivers, workers, and also the fans? I think there's an opportunity to do things that are very visible, that are quite simple to put in place. If you look at, through my work with Stonewall, I've, uh, you know, I went to the Stonewall conference a few years ago, the Stonewall Summit, sorry, at Wembley, and you know, we heard from all sporting bodies and organisers about, you know, what they're doing to make their sports more inclusive. Uh, and you just look at something like, Rainbow Laces, for example, you know, really successful campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it's it's very simple. You know, people wear rainbow laces to to show their support for the LGBT community, and that's a very visible thing you can do as an ally that sends out a very strong, very easy to understand message. And I think that's where motorsport could be, could be, you know, learning some lessons from other sports really, because. I found that motorsport is really supportive. I've had, you know, I feel very lucky to have had the support that I've had. And 
I think one of the problems I found was that I just couldn't see that support support mm. was there. I didn't know mm. until I put myself in the in that situation. Um, you need you need some kind of way to to feel like actually yeah look I can see you know imagine in June imagine there's some you know Pride Month motorsport does this huge thing and and everybody's running a, a rainbow flag on the on the yeah on the um, aileron on their car or on the rear wing or just something very simple that just sends out a really clear message and you think oh wow that's amazing you know. Um, I, I think things that, that, that do that, I think also support from, you know, key people within the sport. Uh, you know, de- I worked with Racing Pride. Damon Hill was was very, uh, very vocal in terms of saying why he thought we need an organisation mm-hmm. like Racing Pride in motorsport. And I think having people who are very, very well-known, recognised ambassadors for the sport who step up as allies, yeah. I think that's really important too. And so, uh, yeah, I think I think there would be my two main things that, that could really create a big impact. I think allyship is really important. I've always sort of said that's that is the big thing that that is important, most important for us, I think. But the um, I've noticed that with NASCAR, for example, with uh, the current uh, Black Lives Matter movement that is starting to sweep around um, that they start they've just done an amazing thing not just by banning the confederate flag but also they ran uh, a race recently i believe with all of their um with their logos and stuff on cars i think uh and i know mercedes are planning in formula one to do a, a black paint job on one of their cars yeah mercedes um, run that uh, the Grand yeah. Prix at the weekend oh cool <laughs> sorry i should know these things um but no i, I just think like it is the time to sort of start making these sort of statements and having this sort of presence out there. Um, and I think sport plays not only a role, obviously, within the sport, but also as, as a message out to the wider population and fans. So I do think that's really important. That's really some great points to take away. Now, we're here today specifically because we're, with the effects of COVID-19 currently ongoing, um, you have turned your hand to esports and specifically, obviously, sim racing. Um, tell us about what you've been up to. Well, I had a really exciting window into esports. It's something I, sim racing, something I've been aware of. I, I grew up playing on computer games when I was, you know, when I was a teenager. And actually, that's probably the first type of racing <laughs> that I ever did was racing on consoles. And so I joined uh, the Forza Racing Championship last autumn over in LA. And a really amazing opportunity to work on that show. And, and it just really opened my eyes, I think, to a few things, to you know, the level of skill and dedication that the professional sim racers have and the amount of work and effort and practice they put into to developing that. And also just what an amazing online community there is. I mean, you know, that was that's something I was really really grateful to Forza for that mm. for that insight and an amazing opportunity to go and and be a sports caster on that show and to you know to bring my experience as someone who races in the physical world into the virtual world so I came away from that experience thinking uh, you know this is this is something I need to I, I want I want to be more involved in you know I had such a great time and so I started building myself a sim at the same time, I decided that I wanted to 
to race at the Nürburgring this season. Mm-hmm. So 25 kilometer track, I thought, right, okay, got to learn that on the sim first. So I started putting a sim together and, uh, you know, got some, got some, you know, some good, some good kit from Thrustmaster and next level racing. And, um, and then of course, as you say, I mean, you know, the whole COVID disaster started and, and at the same moment, Formula E approached me about racing in the race at home challenge, mm-hmm. which, which was fantastic. I, I didn't think for a moment, oh, I'm going to come into this championship and be, be winning it. But I suppose equally, I didn't fully appreciate how fast the professional sim races were. And it was a, a, a bit of a baptism of fire, <laughs> stepping up to, trying to step up to that level. But an amazing opportunity. And also, you know, to be doing something that raised money for UNICEF. Mm. And, uh, and to, you know, to have the, the potential prize there of a, a drive-in agenda to Formula E car. So, I mean, I, I put 200... I, I, put over 200 hours of practice into the seven races that I think I did in the championship. Mm-hmm. So huge. I mean, you know, more than I've ever done in anything like that before. And I, I loved every moment. I mean, it, it was frustrating at times because you, you know, chasing, you know, chasing that kind of two second margin, which was generally the, the, the distance I had to try and catch the front runners. Mm. But I had some great battles in that, in that race series, especially with Mike Channel, who uh, who was someone again came in on a probably similar level to me. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it was an amazing experience, and I, I you know I'm just trying to do more and more now in sim racing. Uh, I had a, a, a good um, a good well say what would have been a good race uh, with uh, with Overtake recently, but unfortunately I got caught out on cold tires. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, I had a lot of excuses because I was actually racing in Germany, so I was using my friend's sim. Oh, and, okay. Yeah, uh, that yeah. was on the yeah, Seto Corsa Competizione yeah. as well. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm just loving it. I, I think the sim racing community, uh, you know, within esports is 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 fantastic, and it, it's it's just everything we talked about. You know, that whole entry point into mm. racing in the physical world and and the difficulty that people have that just really don't exist in the, in the virtual mm. world it, it, it's yeah that's really interesting i mean so, so what are the main as a sort of somebody that's obviously driven now in in both of these worlds what what do you think are the main similarities between uh racing cars in reality versus in game i think you have to have that level of focus you have to concentrate very very intently and uh, when I race on the sim, I try and get myself into the same mm. mental state that I would be when I'm racing a car. And so I think uh, I think to in- improve and increase your focus, I think that's really important. I think, uh, you know, it, it can be a, a lot harder as someone who's used to racing in the physical world, stepping into the virtual world, because a lot of the sensory inputs you're used to suddenly are gone and so i think in some ways you actually have to work harder as someone who's not a pro sim racer and by sensory inputs you mean actually the the sort of the feel of the car the feel of the resistance on the wheel the pedals yeah exactly all the vibrations Mm. the g-forces that you get Mm. i mean a lot of a lot of the a lot of the feedback 
does literally come through your body, through the seat of your pants, through your, through your connection with the car when you're strapped in so tight. You, you don't have that in a sim. Everything yeah. really is down to your feedback through the wheel. And so it's absolutely critical that, of course, having, having a very high-end sim gives you an advantage over somebody with an entry-level sim. But even so, you have, to, you have to really work at that to, to, to be able to rely on a, a much more narrow um band of of information yeah if, if yeah. you look at it that way yeah so but I, I think yeah i think there are there's certainly things you can learn from from racing in the sim that you can and again learning tracks learning breaking points learning i was about to say that, yeah yeah that's it that's really an interesting point that you said about practicing ready for the nurburgring by actually running the sim because it is that the games now are getting to such a point that they are exceptionally accurate when it comes to uh, entry points, exit points, um, distances, names of corners, etc. So do you think that going forward, this is going to be kind of like a, a way for a lot of racing drivers to prep for real life races is playing them in game? I think completely. Yeah. I mean, I, I do every time I go to a new circuit, I'll, I'll learn it on my sim. And I think, especially when you look at, I mean, I, I've done uh, quite a bit of training at Cranfield Simulation they have this incredible sim mm. there with VR and 11 degrees of freedom and it's, it has this GQing so it has these air pockets in the seat that simulate oh, cool. G-force as you, go, yeah. as you corner when when you're combining that with VR you, you feel I mean it's the closest thing I've ever experienced to being in a racing car uh, the one I'm not in a real yeah. racing car if you know <laughs> what I mean and uh, you could uh, last year I did a lot of training there before some of the races in Le Mans Cup and you you could step out of that into the car and you could straight away you 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 would be kind of up where you needed to be almost it was it was really remarkable the the skill set transfer that you could carry over from that experience you mentioned Le Mans then um you obviously one of your big goals I know is is to get to competing in Le Mans what is it about Le Mans that is such a sort of gold standard uh, target for a lot of racing drivers? I mean, it's it's arguably the biggest race in the world. Mm. I think uh, in terms of attendance and viewing figures, it's probably only really rivaled by the Indy 500. And then, of course, you have the Monaco Grand Prix. I mean, those three races form the triple crown. You know, the three that every driver, I think Graham Hill was the last I'm oh, possibly cool. the only person to have done it. I'm not too sure. But, um, of course, you have, uh, you know, Montoya and Alonso now trying to trying to do mm. it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's just, yeah, it's the, the scale of it. It's the, it's the romance. It's, you know, it's the oldest endurance race of its kind. It's... It's, it's, re it's regularly captured in movies, isn't it? Because obviously there's just been a film that's just come out called Le Mans, yeah, which, I mean, which is the whole sort of Ford versus Ferrari battle. Exactly. I mean, just the sheer number of films and documentaries that hmm. have been made over the over the years. I can't think that there's another track that, that's commanded that level of of popular interest and an almost kind of legendary status really within, not only within the motorsport community, but even just... And you say to anybody, even if they're not a petrol head or the 24 hours of Le Mans, they, they've probably heard of it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and, you know, it, it's that 
test of of man and machine and uh, it, you know that that pushing yourself and not just you the mechanics everyone in the team it's it's pushing everything to the limit it's 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 almost like a whole season's racing in 24 hours uh, and then you know the racing itself the cars doing you know up to about 200 miles an hour these days of course it used to be a lot quicker in the 60s and the 70s before they put the chicanes in yeah um it, it's it's just got everything and then i think as well just the just to race at the moment because it is such a hard thing to get to it's you know for a lot of a lot of drivers it's the pinnacle of of what they can hope to achieve in their career so you combine all those things together and it, it just makes it very very special do you see that um simulation racing is a way of sort of a stepping stone towards that learning the track uh, getting some experience in thinking about those sort of things is that really a tool that will help you get to Le Mans I think so yeah I mean on 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 the one side of things it's it's critical to be to, you know, to be using a sim to learn a course like that Le Mans is a very high speed course where you typically run relatively low downforce on the car to maintain the speed down the straights so it's quite a unique course in some respects and also i think you look at the what we've seen over the last three months this blurring of the virtual world and the physical mm. world and how we're seeing sim racing suddenly develop a, a a real you know it feels like things have really moved forward suddenly when we've had all these high profile races with 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 some of the most famous racing drivers all racing together on a sim race and it's being broadcast and people are watching it i think i think we're going to see a lot more blurring of the lines going forwards in terms of people coming from sim racing into physical racing uh, and vice versa and the you know the amount of brands and companies coming into that space and suddenly realizing they want to be part of that and then again looking at things like the things you can do with sim racing and esports that you can't do for example at big shows at autosport international in the nec every january the esports side of the show has grown continually year on year and you look at it this year it was huge you know they had a massive stage set up with all the sims and they mm-hmm. had the the dirt rally 2 competition and um the Le Mans esports and you know big audiences watching these guys there competing on massive screens and commentators and you know you can't do that in that kind of space with with a physical car it just so i think it's really interesting to see how how esports is developing like that it is sort of helping really sort of break down those barriers as well isn't it because as you say traveling to support somebody across a number of races all around the world is it's obviously tricky to to, to achieve that on a, on a budget, whereas being able to, and this is the whole esports argument as a whole, not just with racing, but also other sports, sitting and being able to enjoy some of those sports uh, in a virtual world is a lot more, it, it, it levels the playing field a little bit, I think, as a um, fan. Yeah, I, I, think that's, I think that's really true. And I think when you say, okay, say for example, you're a, you're a big Lando Norris fan and you can't yeah you're like well i can't afford to travel the world going to formula one races Mm. but you can be watching lando race in the the virtual indy 500 or all these things like that actually you know 
that I think as a fan, it to be able to have access to that through your computer, through your through your mobile phone, that's a whole level of of connection that you you know we we didn't have going back going back a few years. Mm. I think that's a really really interesting example of how technology is is driving, no pun intended, that <laughs> whole kind of um, you know the, the whole level of interaction. Yeah that we have with with racing drivers now you know and, and, and seeing that side of their personality and their reactions when they're racing in esports races it's it's really great to watch i think it's really positive as well to push out um those sort of strong messages regarding lgbt things as well you're talking about doing stuff uh, in the physical world it'd be great to keep up representation and and um flying the metaphorical flag uh, in the esports world as well, because uh, that is a way that we bring together our community. We can rally around uh, pioneers such as yourself, and there really is an opportunity there. I think to to fly that flag. I completely agree, and I, I think that's been, that's one of the great things about the you know the online racing community. It's we have you know we have these really safe spaces that are mm. very supportive. Uh, you know, my my first kind of window into this when I was transitioning was on YouTube as a vlogger. Yeah. Uh, and I was amazed at the the level of support and, and interaction I had with people through this medium that really made a massive difference to to how I felt at that time. And I think that, that the esports community is, is really another great example of that. You know, there's so much support for the LGBTQ community yeah. online. And so that's something that, that you know, it's it's such a it's such a positive thing i think it's fantastic so yeah so in amongst uh, all of your racing and your simming and everything else um do you enjoy any other type of video game i i'll be honest i i <laughs> wish i had time to play some other video games i don't really um I almost feel like if I did, if I went and got some, I just wouldn't get anything done. True. But, uh, I mean, yeah, I used to love, I mean, I used to love the whole Splinter Cell series on Xbox. Uh, and I think, that you know, the, just the whole physics and the, and the lighting and everything mm. in that game at the time was just incredible. And, I mean... Wipeout was a was a series I used to love as well. Oh, that was one hell of a game. That was yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah. So, lastly, then, what does the future hold uh, for you? What's the sort of coming up on the horizon? What you got to look forward to? Obviously, getting back on a track is obviously a really good thing to look forward to. But if there's anything sort of professionally coming up, so I'm really really excited to be you know, to be back racing right now. I had my first race of the season two weeks ago at the Nürburgring and I'm back there this weekend we've got a double header so all my racing this this year is in the Nürburgring Endurance Series and I'll be competing in a 24-hour race there in September which is going to be not only the highlight of the season but also probably the you know the career highlight mm. for me so far to, to do something like that and a big step on the way to competing at the 24 hours of Le Mans really so that's a that's a that's a really big moment coming up this year, and then looking also at some you know some more races in esports. I had somebody approach me about um, about something just literally last week, which I'm I'm hoping is going to happen, which would be um, racing in quite a high profile series. So I'm trying to really maintain 
you know, those two, those two sides of what I'm doing right now. And looking to do a bit more in television. Uh, that's been a, an ambition of mine as well, is to, to actually get involved with a, with a TV show, either as a presenter or some kind of, some kind of permanent, uh, you know, um, presence on television. Yeah. And then really, yeah, just looking towards next season, you know, planning, planning next year, really, and what, what kind of racing that's going to be, whether, whether Le Mans can happen next year or, 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 you know, certainly whatever happens, just doing as much racing as I can. And, uh, yeah, just, just, just building my experience, building my results, building my profile and, and closing in on that goal, I hope. Awesome. Well, good luck for everything. Um, you're fantastic. Keep flying that flag loud and proud as well. Um, you really are sort of being a real sort of figurehead, I think, in motor racing uh, for the LGBT community. So thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Robin. It's really been a pleasure to, to chat to you everything and you know, join you on the show. So, uh, yeah, thanks. Doing, keep doing what you're doing, too. It's Thank amazing. you. Uh, that's the end of our episode a big thank you to my guests shay and charlie and an even bigger thank you to you all for listening we're going to be back in two weeks with our next episode but in the meantime keep up with all the lgbtq video gaming stories on gaming magazine and be sure to follow us on facebook and twitter so you don't miss any of these amazing stories we are at gaming mag take care and goodbye (laughs) 